Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The FT Dutch-style pensions are coming to Britain, but can they really deliver 30% more income in retirement? How easy is it to put a peer-to-peer loan in your ISA? And the new-look Green Deal, with free money for home improvements, but will it really encourage take-up? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most downloaded podcast. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form, with the help of my FT colleagues Joe Cumbo. Hello. Emma Dunkley. Hello. Plus a special studio guest, Mervyn Kohler of Age UK. Hello. Pensions were a big feature of this week's Queen's speech, with the government confirming that it will legislate to allow people more freedom over their retirement funds and that it would introduce collective pensions to the UK. Collective pensions, sometimes called defined ambition pensions, are already in use in some other countries, such as Canada, Denmark and the Netherlands. Indeed, they're often referred to as Dutch pensions. Advocates say they offer more certainty than a conventional money purchase pension because the sharing of risk smooths returns to investors and economies of scale reduce the costs. But critics say they offer no particular guarantees, they're challenging to manage and are less flexible and will never take off here because the structure of our labour market is so different. So who's right? And will employers take up collective pensions even if they are allowed to? Joe Cumbo is here with more. Joe, first of all, how do these collective pensions differ from the money purchase or defined contribution schemes that most employers offer to their staff these days? Hello, Jonathan. Yes, in the UK at the moment, most people are enrolled in a scheme called the Defined Contribution Scheme, where they take on the full responsibility for building up their pension savings by themselves individually. These schemes have become more popular as the traditional mainstay of pension provision in the UK, the final salary pension, which was considered gold standard, where you popped your money in and uh, the employer gave you a pension at the end and it was their responsibility to pay it. Well, they've died out. So most people nowadays are being signed into schemes where they have no certainty of what they'll get in retirement. And that's the defined contribution pension. The space that these new collective schemes is designed to opt into is in the middle between defined contribution and money purchase. So it's designed to offer people a little bit more certainty than they would get from being in a pure, rugged DC scheme, but they won't have the hard promise that you would get in a final salary scheme. 
And what are the advantages of them? Do they give you more certainty, lower costs? There's a lot of claims being made about what these schemes can deliver based on experiences overseas. The key driver of efficiencies is scale. Now you get all those people who are saving by themselves, potentially in the UK individually, pull them together into one big mega fund and you drive uh, lower costs through scale and also through wider investment choice, etc. And the big difference about uh, the way these schemes run is they are cradle to grave. So you start saving with one of these schemes, putting money into it, and the same pot, the same fund will then pay your money. So instead of opting out and getting yourself an annuity, etc., that what they tend to do is pay your income even all the way into retirement. And what about the disadvantages? For instance, if you left your employer, what would happen to your fund then? Well, all these kind of little details need to be ironed out. But the closest way of thinking about the way collective defined contribution or pooled schemes work is with profits. Now, a lot of people will probably be familiar with the with profits model. You pay money in and it goes into a big box. The returns of what you get back are are smooth. In CDC, collective schemes operate in the same way. And the disadvantages of them is that there are winners and losers throughout that journey. If the market takes a big downturn, decisions have to be made about who's going to pick up the tab. And in Holland, there has been a lot of controversy because in 2008, with the financial crisis, it was the young people who were saving who had to make up the shortfall in the fund by paying higher contributions. The overall principle of it is that, yes, you you can suffer a bit of up and down, but it's less of an extreme involatility than you would get saving on your own. And there are less flexibilities, as you mentioned, to opt out at, at retirement if you wanted to do something else. In these kind of schemes, you probably would face an exit penalty, which might be prohibitive. Isn't there a danger that employers will will look at this and think, oh, great, we can get one of these um, defined ambition schemes and use that as an excuse to sort of shut down what's left of our existing final salary scheme? The road to DC is well trodden now. I think that there's most people are in DC schemes and what the government would, would hope to see is that those employers who have DC schemes might actually pick up and take on this model. I don't think it's going to change anything that's going on with DB too greatly, but maybe improve the potential of more certain outcome in DC as it stands, but not closure of final salary schemes. Okay. Now, the government has said this week that it will legislate to allow employers to offer these schemes. How soon might that happen? What will happen next? Well, we've got to get the private pensions bill through over the next year before the end of uh, this parliament. So they've got to get all the, the details ironed out on how these schemes will be worked. There's lots of questions about how the model, which is working overseas, will be adapted for the UK, given new pension freedoms also being offered to savers. Potentially, if that all goes to plan, we might see uh, the first collective pooled scheme by April 2016. Joe, thanks very much. There's more on collective schemes, including a Q&A answering the most common questions in this weekend's FT Money. And you'll also find more on the subject of guidance, the free face-to-face advice that we're all supposed to be getting at retirement from April next year. It turns out, though, that this isn't quite what it seems. Still to come on the show, the Green Deal promises free money for home improvements. But what's the catch? First, though, let's look at peer-to-peer lending. This has been one of the big investment stories of the past few years. Dozens of websites have sprung up to provide facilities for savers to lend money directly to carefully vetted borrowers. 
The sales pitch has something for everyone. Savers get better interest rates than those offered elsewhere, while borrowers get access to credit they might otherwise have been denied, and banks and traditional lenders get a kick up the backside. The government has bent over backwards to encourage the industry's development. From April this year, P2P and other forms of crowdfunding became regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, which gave the industry a great deal more credibility in the eyes of investors. And in the budget, George Osborne said that P2P lending and crowdfunding will be allowed in ISAs in future, meaning that the interest earned could be sheltered from tax. So, how do you go about putting P2P in your ISA? Well, it's not quite as straightforward as you might imagine. Emma Dunkley is here with more. Emma, so I want to set up a tax-free P2P ISA. Presumably I just go to Zopa or Rate Setter or Funding Circle and set one up. This is the debate at the moment. Currently, there's a working group established by all the peer-to-peer lenders who are working with the Treasury to figure out the best way of allowing investors to put peer-to-peer lending in their ISA. So as it stands, it seems like all the peer-to-peer platforms will be able to become ISA managers. Therefore, an ordinary person can go to Zopa, for example, or Ratesetter, where they will offer an ISA wrapper through which they can invest in peer-to-peer lending. However, the Treasury are currently thrashing out a few other ideas. Because investors can only have one stocks and shares ISA and one cash ISA a year, if an investor were to go via a peer-to-peer lending platform, this would saturate their whole stocks and shares ISA allowance, which would mean they could only invest in peer-to-peer lending. So some of the other ideas being considered are whether platforms could perhaps offer ISAs that don't simply just invest in peer-to-peer lending, but a, a broader and allow investors to also invest in stocks and shares and funds. However, lots of the platforms are saying that this would actually entail a lot of administration, a lot more costs, and would be quite tough to implement. As a result, a third idea being mooted is that there could be a setup of a third ISA, which means investors could technically get a peer-to-peer ISA, as well as a stocks and shares ISA and a cash ISA. Currently, all these ideas are being mooted by the Treasury and and will go out to consultation next month. Okay, now I can understand why someone like Zopa or Ratesetter, which are leading peer-to-peer platforms, I could understand why they don't particularly want to go and add stockbroking and a fund supermarket to their product offering. But what about doing it the other way round? So if I, for instance, go to Fidelity or Hargreaves Lansdowne, could I not um, uh, do peer-to-peer lending through them? Yes, you could technically go through these routes. However, a lot of these brokers are reluctant to dive straight in because the peer-to-peer lending industry is quite new. So a lot of the brokers want to wait and see how it pans out. Furthermore, there are still quite a few issues to be addressed. ISAs need to be transferable, for example, so they are able to be moved from one platform to another. Aside from this, there are also potential risks with peer-to-peer lending that investors have yet to experience or might not have the appetite for. For example, if the platform itself goes bust, this could pose a significant threat for investors because peer-to-peer lenders aren't covered by the financial services compensation scheme. Peer-to-peer lending isn't like a savings account. It entails a separate set of risks. And platforms such as Hargreaves Lansdowne are perhaps reluctant to dive straight in and take this on board because of the extra risks they pose. Okay, so when you drill into the detail, it's not actually that straightforward to put peer-to-peer lending in your ISA. Is there any way that you can do it at the moment? It sounds like all these working groups and consultations are going to take quite a long time to sort themselves out. Is there anything you can do now? 
Yes, you can currently go to peer-to-peer lending platforms directly to invest, although this will not be through an ISA. Another way is that an investment trust has recently been launched that allows you to invest through the trust through peer-to-peer lending. So that's another way to get access. But as it stands, there is no direct route offered by the likes of Zopa or Ratesetter that allows you to invest in peer-to-peer lending through an ISA. So if I do peer-to-peer lending in the normal way, uh, outside an ISA, presumably the interest I receive will be taxed, will it? It will not be taxed. So this is one of the issues. You receive the income gross of tax, so you are supposed to declare it yourself. However, this is an extra layer of administration a lot of investors don't want. It's also worth noting that the government is keen to promote this alternative source of funding because a lot of small and medium-sized businesses who are on the receiving end of these loans are often often find that their loan applications are rejected by banks. So this is an alternative source of funding they can receive, which the government is keen to support to help promote the overall growth of the UK economy. Thanks very much. That was Emma Dunkley, who has explained much more about the P2P ISA revolution that isn't quite happening in this weekend's FT Money. FT Money is part of the Weekend FT, which is on sale on both Saturday and Sunday. You can read online at any time, ft.com forward slash money. And the Weekend FT is also available on mobile devices via a free web app in both Apple and Android versions. We're always keen to hear your views too. You can leave comments at the foot of articles on our website at ft.com forward slash money, or you can email us directly. The address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. This month, the revamped Green Deal opens for business. This is the UK government's latest attempt to make the housing stock in this country more energy efficient, a move that would cut greenhouse gas emissions and reduce energy consumption. And it's potentially quite generous. You could get, for instance, up to £1,000 off the cost of double glazing, cavity wall insulation or a new boiler. And you could get up to £6,000 off the cost of solid wall insulation. Yet many people are completely unaware of the Green Deal's existence. Even if they have heard of it, they may be confusing it with any number of current or preceding energy efficiency schemes. Or they may assume that it is means-tested, like many others. Actually, it isn't, and it's open to anyone. But you have to be quick, because there's a limited amount of funding available, and you have to jump through some hoops as well. Mervyn Kohler, who is Social Affairs Advisor at Age UK, and a specialist in fuel poverty issues, is here to tell us more. Mervyn, what's the difference between this iteration of the Green Deal and previous versions of it, which were rather conspicuously unsuccessful, I think it's fair to say? Yes, the fundamental concept in the Green Deal is that you can take out a loan to do some energy efficiency improvements and then you repay that loan by the savings that you are making on the energy that you are no longer needing to consume. And when the scheme was launched at the beginning of last year, the government had some bright ideas about cashback schemes and so on in order to try to incentivise take-up. But I'm afraid that over the last year and a bit, year and a half, the take-up has really been very sickly indeed. And I think a lot of the problem, Jonathan, is that people just don't understand the concept, just don't get it. It's a totally novel kind of a way. You take out a loan and it is repaid through your electricity meter. And if you move house, the person who's buying your house takes on the repayments. People aren't sure that they're, well, they're just not familiar with that way of doing things. And I think particularly about the older population, 
there's a fundamental distrust that the promised savings are actually going to be as real as they are offered. A lot of older people don't heat themselves as much as they ought to and may well see a new boiler or something of that nature as a way of keeping themselves more adequately warm and more comfortable. Than actually saving money. More than saving money, yes. And what's on offer this time? How is the government trying to encourage take-up and participation? It's trying to encourage take-up with these new grants that you've referred to, which enhance whatever you borrow. Solid wall attracts a lot of this because solid wall insulation is very expensive indeed. But about a quarter of our housing stock has got solid walls and we've got to address that, not only for the comfort of the occupants, but for our obligations under the climate change legislation. So how does it work if you have a, um, for instance, I have a solid walled house and I can attest that in winter, the moment you turn the heating off, the temperature plunges. How do I go about uh, availing myself of these grants? And do I still have to borrow money or can I just get money from the government and do the work myself? It would still be open to you to just put the money up front and, and go for it. But if you go into the Green Deal process, you've got a fairly clunky bit of architecture, but it's all there in order to try to give people, give the consumer confidence. So you would approach a Green Deal provider who then sends around a Green Deal assessor to work out what can be done to improve the energy efficiency and the general level of warmth in your home. Then you sign a Green Deal plan and then your provider arranges for a Green Deal installer to come around and do the necessary bits of work. So theoretically, from the consumer point of view, It's no great hassle, and theoretically, because the provider and the assessor and the installer are all accredited and so on, you're going to get a a good standard of work being done. So there are an awful lot of people that get involved. And another thing about the Green Deal, which is a bit problematical, is that it has what it calls its golden rule – The scheme will not let you borrow more money than the anticipated savings are likely to be. And that sometimes is going to constrain the amount of work that you actually can have done. So you might end up with a new boiler and maybe a bit of insulation, but perhaps not the solid wall that you actually wanted. Well, that brings me to an interesting question, which is that I read elsewhere sometimes that a lot of these home improvements, they do save energy, but to actually save enough to pay back the cost, you would have to live in your house for 20, 30 or 40 uh, years even. Which are the the improvements that are really worth doing? What's the low-hanging fruit here? Oh, the low-hanging fruit would be cavity wall insulation and loft insulation, a new condensing boiler at a decent energy efficiency rating, an A-rated one is going to be much more efficient than stuff that you might have bought or might have had installed in the house 20 years ago. But solid wall is the hard nut to crack because it's not a very nice system that we have at the moment. It's either external wall cladding, which changes the appearance of your house from the point of view of what it looks like outside, or internal cladding, which then has to work its way round all the electric plugs and takes up about four inches of space off the size of your room. And presumably you'd need to redecorate after it had been done. And you would have to do that, yes. Okay, so it's there if you want it, free money from the government, but quite a lot of work involved in getting it and possibly quite a lot of work involved afterwards too. Thanks very much. That was Mervyn Kohler from Age UK.
There's just time for me to tell you what else is coming up in this weekend's paper. We look at the costs of investing, particularly the issue of fund managers' trading costs. David Stevenson looks at whether leveraged exchange-traded funds will really blow up the entire industry, as one commentator predicted this week. And are the model portfolios used by financial advisers really any good, or just money for old rope? That's all for this week, but we'll be back next week with more money news in downloadable form. For now, it's goodbye from me, Joe, Emma, and our special studio guest, Mervyn Kohler. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.